The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. QAnon, a group, a, uh, a collection. What is the collective noun for a conspiracy theory community? Looking it up, ah, a clown bag. Okay, a clown bag of conspiracy theorists named QAnon has sprung up on Reddit, where else? Cut to Donald Trump rallies full of people holding up the letter Q. Their belief system is complex, and you know what? It really doesn't matter. I don't want to get into it. Something like Trump being the only savior of society goes back centuries, and Trump's giving secret symbols, and number 17 shows up, and pedophilia, and torture chambers, blah, 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 blah. You got to cover QAnon. They're now in the news. They're having an impact on the real world. They're being asked about in presidential press conferences. But rather than my doing their PR work for them and reciting their quote unquote beliefs, let me just play you a snippet from one of their online videos that they pass around. And I ask you to pay attention to the sound design. Every president after Reagan was one of these deep state criminals and their empire got even stronger. With each bad president came new depths America and the world would see. Okay, that music, that chanty, conspiratorial music, it seems crazy, right? It's like underwear on the outside crazy. It's tinfoil hat crazy. And let me just say that crazy people have ruined what was once a fashion-forward choice for the rest of us. Yes, exactly. That's what the Masons beaming gamma rays out of Mount Rushmore would have us believe. But I was wondering, how much does pairing anything with that music, make it sound conspiratorial and crazy. So I sought out the most anodyne prose that exist, and I paired them to that music. And you tell me if it still seems crazy, because I think it might. All right, here's one. The Apple User Agreement. Licensor hereby disclaims all warranties and conditions with respect to the licensed application and any services either implied, express, or statutory, including but not limited to the implied warranties and or conditions of mercantility. Yeah, that sounded crazy, right? All right, how about some dialogue from the TV show Full House? Joey sniffs Jesse's hair. Joey, gee, your hair smells like melon. What are you using? Jesse, oh, it's this new product called, gee, your hair smells like melon. I think still kind of crazy. Today's weather forecast from Dayton, Ohio. Today sees a high of 84 and a low of 64. Winds from the south at 4 miles per hour. Humidity is at 50%, the dew point 62. The temperature right now, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Last up, a prominent podcast sign-off. Oomperoo, Deparoo, That sounds craziest of all. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, the three-week period where we settle all family business. Don't get stuck in any revolving doors is all I'm saying is all. But first, he's the host of talk show, The Game Show, and a veteran of writing funny words for other people. Now with a new memoir, Guy Branham is writing funny things for himself as himself. 
and he's here to prove it. Guy Branham is a gay, out there, pop culture aficionado who I have so much in common with, it's kind of crazy. (laughs) You wouldn't tell this by the cover of the book. I never had a forward of my book written by Mindy Kaling. All I got was Malcolm Gladwell. That guy's a nerd. (laughs) Guy's book is called My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. It is three things, really. It is a personal memoir of his life. It's his assessment of entertainment and Hollywood. And it's digressions about everything from... Roman aqueducts to mythology to a really good breakdown of why Entourage is both better and worse as a show than we might think. Hello, Guy Branham. How are you? Hello. Good to be here. Oh, yeah. So which goddess are you on the cover? Uh, I I think I am my own goddess. Uh I am. Look, that that cover was thrown together in like 15 minutes because I showed up to, to take the photo and they were like, had me in Oxford shirts in front of like pictures of cornfields and I was like yeah. this isn't going to do <laughs> so I called my florist I got some uh, red uh, cloth that I had at my house and I was yeah. like let's turn this into something a little bit more florid so you called your florist and you said uh, dead roses please no they had brought dead roses like because that was supposed to be about me being sad I don't entirely oh. understand what that was oh. no I told my florist I need a wreath of roses stat I like the fact that you have a florist on retainer uh, it's the city of West Hollywood would you're required to <laughs> it's like having insurance if you're like operating a club or something that's like that. right it's not really about the flowers it's about the peace of mind that the flowers <laughs> the offer. stability of knowing mm-hmm. that if my yeah. friend books a tv show i know exactly where to spend 75 dollars. what if you and your family are without lilacs do you ever have the real life experience where you say something that you know is funny but you know the only audience in the room will not like it maybe you're talking to one person and you say to yourself well it's okay because if this were a sitcom, <laughs> the laugh track would be cranked up at this point. That's so funny. That's very interesting. I usually just leave those things in my own head because I don't want to have to spend time explaining it to people. Yeah. But one of the nice things about working on sitcoms is that you really are surrounded by people who are very ready for those sitcom moments. Like I, like, I kind of a little bit talk about it in the book, but I think the reason we're... TV writers are obsessed with writing shows about TV writers is because like all of the work is jokes. So instead of like Superstore, them running around restocking something like Dick Van Dyke show is just jokes on jokes on jokes. Right, right. And so just basically exposition can be jokes. Yes. And character development can be jokes. But to your point, I rarely say those things. I just say them in my head, which shows that I am not a 1980 sitcom, but instead a bad ripoff of an Austin novel, you know, where it's all going on inside. And you know that there is a reader at home quietly Twitter, uh, like tittering to herself or twittering to herself. (laughs) If you had to live in only one TV genre, would it be talk shows, game shows or sitcoms? Like sitcoms, because there's always stability on a quiz show you're losing some of the time like talk shows are glossy and fun but I feel like you know on a sitcom you get to go to Hawaii like once every six months if you're on ABC you're going to Disneyland constantly (laughs) that's right what does NBC have 
have to offer a trip to the Comcast corporate headquarters. That sucks. Hey, Universal Studios. <laughs> so a lot of the book is how you were uh, you were not suited to your hometown, and perhaps your hometown was not suited to you. Yeah, it's a tiny little farm town in Northern California. People, when they think of Northern California, think of like wineries and lesbians and like cool liberal people. But there is like a whole valley there that is producing all of the asparagus and artichokes that you are getting in your life. My town particularly was uh, peaches, prunes, almonds, walnuts. That's uh, good. That's a nice charcuterie plate. Hey, hey, they're, they're much higher value crops than sad Midwesterners. But it's still, you know, sort of like sad, undereducated, anti-intellectual people who are angry at the world and are just trying to flip their trucks. They have four entertainment flip their trucks. Mm-hmm. What about your, so your mom was definitely your protector. Um, your dad and you seem to be from different planets, let alone different families. But how nurture, you wrote it right about the movies that you would watch with your mom. But what about the intellectual side of things? Did she nurture that? Absolutely. I didn't set out in any specific way to write about my mom in the book. It just came up because she was the person who was sort of like bringing so much of this culture to me or, or sort of my my go-to for when I had questions or curiosity about the world. She was the person who would like be into it and engage with it. And she was, you know, I think lonely in the world of first being just like a stay-at-home mom and then being and a working mom. she was what, 19? Yeah, she was pregnant when she was 19. She worked in a cafeteria and like the ladies she worked with were great, but they weren't the smartest people on the planet and she wanted to have a good conversation. And so she would so frequently talk about politics or art or whatever with me and it was look my my homosexuality has a deeply freudian setup i get it i'm like from a textbook in the 50s but you know my mom was my best friend and the person who i could talk to about this stuff with and she would also like like she would riff a lot with me like i remember this one time she was baking a cake and she was just like doing characters for me yeah and it was like the best that's so fun why can't life be like that Do you think being smart made you an outsider or being an outsider made you smart? That's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer. I mean, I definitely think there were smart people there for whom that world just worked more. And I think in that world working more, um, we don't talk about the way that class is perpetuated in this country. No one in my town was supposed to be curious. No one was supposed to want to know things because... Like, all you needed to do was to learn how to pour concrete or work on a farm. So there were ways that curiosity like that for people who fit in more were just sort of dissuaded, even among extremely bright people, because they didn't need them getting highfalutin. They just needed them being cogs in an economic machine. You know, I kind of talk about it in the book, but I think even being gay made it so much easier for me to not just fall in with what everybody else was doing. So it made you a critical thinker. Yeah. 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 So here is one aspect that I was I was reading the book and I asked myself. So you write about how certain female characters who just who are done giving a fuck are in literature and in film and a lot of gay men love those characters like Mrs. Robinson. Do you think as younger gay people have it a lot easier, those characters will still be appealing? Is there some aspect to the appeal of those characters that you have to sublimate what you couldn't be as a gay man, but these women characters were acting that out on the screen and there will no longer be the need for that in the future? It is an interesting point that you raise, Mike, for two reasons. First of all is I have a joke 
that is essentially my joke is that like it used to be that to be an out gay person you had to be amazing you had to be virginia Woolf or oscar wilde now essentially we'll let anyone in what i am saying is being gay used to be harvard now it is uh, chico state but like i do really think that it is easy to overestimate the idea of like it's going to be easier for those kids or they're they're not going to need these things i mean you look at drag race and it is cool that so many of those queens started doing this when they were younger or had parents who were enthusiastic about it but they are no less fascinated by betty davis or little Edie. you know i mean they are still because and, and will it change when we have more media that is about out gay people yes but also like our culture has always been that reading ourselves into stories that aren't directly about us uh let us talk about some of your writing jobs so you did g4 and you did things that were in the same office as e before you were writing for e yeah like having my first writing job before essentially teenage straight boys was a really wonderful challenge that was like all right guy you can be a writer but you have to make one sports joke every episode like you have to figure out how to write jokes about like video games and the people watching are going to be super nerds. So if you get it wrong at all, they are going to be mad at the world. Uh, And it was really nice starting out on a show that did have the worst and most vehement, like of comment culture, like Like pre Gamergate. I mean, the thing is, I don't think about it, but like everyone who made Gamergate happen was probably on those forums as a 12 year old. And if we had just shepherded them better, this all could have been different. But I like, um, it's funny. I think the shows that I worked for at G4, most of them did a really good job of respecting and loving the space of women in video games and sort of understanding it as a place for like outsiders, all, all kinds of outsiders. Like that's what nerd culture was. And then it turned into um, the broiest thing possible. So then you write for Chelsea and this is where I think most people first see you. And maybe yeah. to this day, do you think more people recognize you from Chelsea? Certainly than gay other guys. Stuff? Yeah. Like when I go to a gay bar, it is universally like, were you on Chelsea lately? And it's like, yes, I was. So an insight as far as writing for Chelsea and then Joan Rivers, you write about Chelsea, that exact word order was not the way to, that was not her strong suit. You had to give her an idea she could sink her teeth into. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just the lesson of learning. Like everybody's got a different voice and a different approach to comedy. And the way that I work isn't how somebody else works. And I don't think I even think about it that much anymore because I'm more used to just sort of internalizing what their voice is and and being able to write to that. You didn't make this point explicit, but then when you included a bunch of the jokes you wrote for Joan Rivers, to me, those very much depended on specific word choice and word order. Well, the thing about writing for Fashion Police is that you were making a bunch of jokes about the same thing. You would have five ladies who had all worn yellow dresses and you would have to write... 10 jokes on all of those yellow dresses and then some of them we didn't have enough good so you had to go back and write eight more and there comes a point where you've got nothing left so it really did require sort of really splicing the joke just right and Joan's magnificence at being able to hold all of that together her vision wasn't the best so she needed just a couple of keywords that were telling her what was going on but her keen memory of everything we had discussed at the writers meeting sometimes there would be jokes that like worked perfectly off of a real interaction she was having with somebody that like weren't in the teleprompter she hadn't prepped but she was able to pull it out and just like deliver it perfectly 
Um, it was exciting to watch somebody in her 80s do that and kind of wonder, hey, if I do something that I love, will will I be this together when I'm 81 or 82? You wrote for the Mindy show. I wrote for the Mindy project, yes. she. You came on halfway through the season. How many seasons were you on? Uh, I was there for three seasons. So when you came on, it was mostly doing joke punch-up. By the end, were you doing story and plot? Um, I had... <laughs> People don't realize it, but scripted TV is very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Like you start out as a staff writer. All of those like producer credits that you see on a TV show, they mean a very specific level of importance. And I was always towards the the bottom of the of the hierarchy there. But as time went, I'm also had written for a lot of shows and have a hard time shutting up. So yeah, by the by the time I had been there for a while, I was definitely, you know, pitching in on that stuff. But more than anything, I was just trying to learn from them because it was full of people from The Simpsons and 30 Rock and The Office, and they understand how a sitcom is made. And I had mostly worked on little cable sitcoms, like Another Period or Awkward, and I just saw it as like a great learning opportunity. I tried to help with plot where I could, but it was always nice when we had a punch-up day, and I was just like, <laughs> all right, sling them jokes. <laughs> Guy Branham, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Guy Branham comes from a place that I've never met anyone from, and I think he might be going to a similar kind of place. Thank you, Guy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And now it's the Antan Twig from the old English word for 21, every three weeks we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing and to ask your forgiveness for all the mistakes I may have made along the way. We respond to listener feedback and mail, and I award a lobster of the Antan Twig. Again, Antan Twig, 21 days. And therefore, when was the last time we did an Antan Twig? 53 days ago. Okay, it's been a while. I guess I just haven't made that many mistakes. My first mistake... I claim not to have made that many mistakes, and that is not true. So let us start off with a bona fide error. I said Old Faithful was in Yosemite. It is in Yellowstone, though it was planning to be moved to a Chick-fil-A before Scott Pruitt left. Now, I want to specifically cite Joanne Mercier, and this was how she alerted me, and many of you did, but Joanne did it best because I have a very fragile ego. And she said, when you implied that Old Faithful was in Yosemite, you were just making sure we were listening. God bless you, Joanne. I implied it. Yes, yes, I implied it. Thank you. So before more corrections, I want to talk about a couple of things that I did say that you thought were wrong, but which weren't wrong. But that also might indicate poor communication, mightn't it? So I imagined a game of chess that Donald Trump might be playing when Michael Cohen recorded him. If you remember that recording, it ended with talk of check, check. So I surmise perhaps Donald Trump was uh, the true genius he claims to be, and it was playing check during that game. And then I had Michael Cohen advise him, you can castle to get out of check. And many wrote in to say, no, you can't castle to get out of check. Yes, which is exactly why a terrible lawyer like Michael Cohen would counsel his client to do so. Okay. Not a mistake, but maybe I didn't get it. Another point I was trying to make, and I think I did so, though some rushed in to clarify. I was saying just because, I was saying of the Korean, the North Korean summit, just because Donald Trump promised that it meant peace, it doesn't necessarily mean peace. 
and I said, just because someone claims peace in our time doesn't actually guarantee peace in our time, and we don't need Clement Attlee to tell us so, to which many people said, no, it was Neville Chamberlain who promised peace in our time. Yes, yes, yes. I will quote my answer from one exchange I had. So this listener, uh, Neville Hadley, wrote in and said, hi, Mike, I wanted to say it wasn't Clem Attlee who spoke of peace in our time. And I responded, what I said was, no, just because you say we have peace in our time doesn't mean we have peace in our time. We don't need Clement Attlee to tell us so because Clement Attlee was the politician who pointed out most forcefully that the Munich agreement was worthless. But thank you for writing in, Neville Hadley. And oh, by the way, out of curiosity, do you take special interest in all Neville references? Because I used to assiduously avoid them. I was a never Neville, but I've made strides. To which I added, because I can't stop, in fact, I and all the other Never Nevilles would gather at a theme park, but Never Neville Land just didn't have the customer base to survive. Mr. Hadsley has not responded since. And I don't know if he will, but I suppose never say Neville. So those are a couple of things that I meant to say. Maybe they were confusing, but then there were a lot of things I meant to say and I shouldn't have because they were wrong. At one point, I made this reference to cleaner than Caesar's ghost. That's a particularly hilarious mistake. I'm glad so many of you enjoyed it. Couple idioms, cleaner than Caesar's wife or great Caesar's ghost. The first one comes from, I think, vaguely Shakespeare and the second one, clearly Marvel Comics. More Roman history errors. I referenced Nero's horse. Nero made his horse a senator. Incorrect. Nero didn't make his horse a senator. Caligula did. And Caligula really didn't, but it's a useful myth to have and refer to. It is too bad because if a horse were in the Senate, he could sit on the Nays and Means Committee. Yes, I know the Ways and Means Committee is only in the House, but this is the Nays and Means Committee. Different rules right there. I bet a horse could win. I mean, he'd certainly lead in the Gallup poll. You know, why am I saying he? Why not a female horse? A female horse could be senator. I mean, first you'd have to be a mayor. I'd say a Philly mayor is the way to go. And you know, she'd be party loyal because she'd always respond to her whip. Okay, listen, you deserve better. Here is your reward. I was reading Stuart Eisenstadt's book, President Carter. You heard him on the show. Listen to this. This isn't, this isn't the 1870s. This is the 1970s. Texas Congressman Robert Kruger, who stood out in the exceptionally talented class of Watergate babies, swept into office in the 74 midterm elections. A handsome, curly-haired Rhodes Scholar with a doctorate from Oxford, he had just been named at the tender age of 36 to the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Duke University. Ooh, I, for a second, I think this is going to be the, the uh, sexual awakening of Representative Robert Kruger, but this is the road he goes down. At Duke, he was a Shakespeare scholar. But when his father came down with cancer, Kruger moved home, ran for Congress, won election in Texas. He was sparring with a colleague, James Schlesinger, who was uh, very verbose. And at one point, Schlesinger said mockingly, quote, me thought the young Shakespeare professor had a lean and hungry look in the committee meeting earlier this week. Kruger immediately recognized the allusion to Cassius in Julius Caesar and shot back. You know, Jim, the next lines are, he thinks too much. Men like him are dangerous. Bested in scholarly combat, Schlesinger turned away. Yeah, I'm sure stuff like that goes on in the modern Congress all the time. I'm sure Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes are just out Timmons of Athensing each other left and right. Okay, that was your reward. Back onto the 
Antan Twig. I was saying that Diggum, the uh, honey smacks spokes animal, shouldn't be a frog. If its name is Diggum, it should be a burrowing animal. Not, of course, a mole, I said. Well, why not a mole? Laura Babinski alerted me to this guy. Oh, ne, 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 to ne, neklepat, vystrašíš miminko uvnitř. That is popular Czech cartoon character, Kreček, Krutek, the mole. He is cute. Yes, Laura, even breakfast cereal cute. And now we award the lobsters of the Antan Twig. I have a runner-up lobster, and it is Alex Martini. Here's what he writes. I want to thank you for all the wonderful content you produce and I consume. I'm a just completist. I really enjoyed reading upon further review, both the book and the podcast, but I'm sorry. I'm a Slate Plus member, which means that not only can I never plug in your promo code for the items that you're hawking, but I also can't rate and review your show. Also, I borrowed your book from my public library, so I'm sorry. And he goes on to conclude, if you come up with a third area of content, because I have been slacking, I promise I won't find a backdoor way of not paying for it. Well, I have, Martini, and here is the answer. I'm doing a one-man show. It is a Nicholas Nickleby, Angels in America, four-hour on either side of a meal break type deal. I'll tell a lot of horse senator puns and explain what I meant by the Ways and Means Committee. Tickets are $300 each. That's director's circle. You have to buy both. Thank you. You are now committed. But the lobster, the true lobster of the Antantwick, it's not someone who has found every way to deny me fair recompense for my efforts. It is Dan McNamee. And Dan McNamee writes after he heard an Is That Bullshit segment on saunas. He said, I believe I was the seed from which the sauna bullshit segment was born. I convinced a lovely woman to marry me. I have a great two-year-old boy. I have achieved moderate success professionally. But making that contribution to your show and the public's knowledge of the potentially positive impact of saunas is clearly my greatest accomplishment. Thank you and you're welcome. Well, here's who I want to give the lobster of this Antan twig to. Dan McNamee's two-year-old son, little Schwitzy. Schwitzy McNamee, you are the lobster of this Antan twig. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Their preferred genre of TV show to live in is time-traveling crime solvers with a yen for mischief. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's never truck-flipped. Well, unless you count the Suzuki Samurai, who hasn't been there, right? The gist. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I want to tell you this. I'm off tomorrow, but there will be a gist. I am hosting the Only a Game program. Check it out on local public radio stations or the Only a Game podcast. In my stead, on the gist, it's Jeffrey Lewis of the Arms Control Wonk podcast, and he is going to be talking about Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson's match play event. No, that'll be me. He'll be talking about, he will be talking about, well, he's going deep into space. That'll be tomorrow. I don't do that on the gist. I should. So we got a better guy than me to do it. The gist. We don't explicitly try to tell jokes that seem funny to teenage straight boys. But if your sense of humor centers around getting hit in the nuts, your sense of humor centers around getting hit in the nuts. What are you going to do? Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.